0: Episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a, a great guest. As, as we have uh, Elena McGrath, and we are going to, to talk who, who is a, a assistant professor of history at the Union College, uh, and she's an historian of Latin America, and, and particularly uh, Bolivia. So we are going to to start talking um, about what is happening now, but but also the the, the historical context of what is uh, of, of what is. Uh, of of the process happening in Bolivia, but but uh, so hi Elena,
1: hi Camilo, thank you for having me on.
0: So first of all, how do you became interested in 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 Bolivia? Because uh, I feel that a, a lot of of of, of historians of, of Latin America, particularly uh, lately, are are having um, researching more other geographies. Although I, I think. Uh, it, it's true that that, that Bolivia appears and for different reasons uh, in 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 Latin American uh, historiography, particularly lately.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I think that often uh, Latin American historians historians think about Bolivia as a kind of um, an outlier in certain ways. I I got interested in Bolivia by traveling. I was when I was a college student. Um, I ended up traveling to Latin America and um after I graduated I went to Bolivia and I was um I was there in 2006 so I was there at in the early stages of Evo Morales's first term in office and especially during the um a lot of the the run up and the elections surrounding the constitutional convention um the constituent assembly that was held in the, in that period and I I found Bolivia to be a place unlike any I'd ever experienced. And I found Bolivia to be, um, it it seemed to be a place where everyone I talked to had a very strong sense of both politics and history. Like what has happened in the past that has been wrong and that needs to be fixed. And we have a clear idea of how we are going to be fixing it. And now with this new uh, proceso de cambio, with this new government in power, we are going to change fundamentally changed the structures of the society and that was something that I I had just never encountered before so I when I went back to the United States I decided I wanted to study Bolivia and, and understand more um, how this sort of political movement that I was witnessing came to be and then what it what it meant and so I I went to grad school I studied with um, I studied at the University of Wisconsin with a couple of professors there who um, work on, on the region, and and that's how I got started.
0: Yeah, that's that's an, an interesting journey. So, I think we 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 should um, start by 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 how the does does uh, Evo Morales and 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 the mass come into power? Because I remember, like uh, even like I'm Peruvian, and I have lived all my life here in Peru. So, um, I, I we always hear about uh, Bolivia in some sense, but uh, it, it, politically we we didn't knew that much about uh, bolivia until like uh, evo morales appeared in the scene basically so it, it 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 was a curious kind of development because like um it, he was in some ways a, a transformational figure and the mass as a political project has been one of the most uh, Complex, uh, but also interesting political projects to come lately in, in 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 the recent Latin American history.
1: Yeah, so Morales has been an incredibly savvy political player, and and of and a, as you said, some something quite unique, I think, in recent Latin American history. So Morales came to power as a result of a series of. Um, social movements and mass-based um, political protests that had been sort of bubbling under the surface throughout the 90s there were a lot of uh, protests against different forms of globalization and neoliberal policies and and widespread frustration with the government um, that existed at that time that sort of got their spark there was a catalyst in the form of a fight over um, The right to water in Cochabamba. And in around the turn of the millennium, what happened was that um, Cochabamba was selling off its water supply to a multinational corporation. And there was this massive protest among people who lived in the community surrounding the city um, in order to protect their rights to water. And many of these communities had been, you know, digging their own wells, creating um, their own water infrastructure, and they um, and they protested against the right of the government to sell off and privatize that water supply. And so that uh, created this huge groundswell of political protest in one region of Bolivia that then um, I think other groups started paying attention to. And so, in the years that followed, there were wa- there were massive protests against uh, the privatization of gas reserves. And um, other sorts of other sorts of similar moves by the government that culminated in um, what was called the gas war, where there are uprisings all over the country. And um, the army came out to repress protesters, and there was a widespread backlash against that kind of violence and repression. And ultimately, um, Evo Morales, who'd been a politician since the 90s, um, sort of, Emerged as the the political figure who was most interested in bringing a number of these different social movement groups together and creating a unified party or bringing them under the umbrella of the MAS, which is um, the Movement Towards Socialism party, and um, uh, and seeing them as part of a governing coalition that could um, that that had a, a unified transformative vision for the country. Now what Morales did was pretty astounding given the history of Bolivia um in his first elections he won uh the elections outright with a majority of the vote with more than 50 percent of the vote and that is not something that had ever happened before in Bolivia where a single candidate um had won with that um with that much of a vote for the most part it since the um since democratic elections had been held in the 1980s pol- presidential candidates would win with like 20% of the vote. And then there would be a sort of negotiation at the level of Congress that the legislature would impose a president. Um, so so from the first, Morales represented a kind of popular mandate. And he he did this by really hearkening back to two different political organizing traditions that are both very powerful in Bolivia. On the one hand, he, he kind of hearkened back to a Um, The social movements that emerged during the 20th century and and especially in the aftermath of um, a nationalist revolution that happened in 1952, which is the subject of a book I'm writing, um, these were very much, um, they were unionized uh, workers, they were um, campesino federations and these these groups that had um, linked up with the revolutionary government in the 1950s and understood themselves to be um, participants in political processes in Bolivia because of um, their their work based organizations. So either they were um, sort of put, putting demands forward as members of peasant federations or as members of worker federations, um, and those groups had been very powerful in the middle of the 20th century in the 1950s. But um, successive waves of repressive governments had been trying to undermine that power, and in fact. Um, you know the economic crises and the political crises of the '70s and '80s had meant that a number of those people had um, had sort of lost their union jobs in the mines, for example, had been fired, or they had been driven off their land by drought crises and economic crises. And so these are, if you, if you think about them, these are like heirs to a political tradition of unionization and um, peasant federations that had happened earlier in the century. And so they understood their political organizing very much in those terms, but these would have been their children or, um, you know, sometimes their grandchildren who had heard these stories and been, had been struggling to recover a kind of lost political voice. And many of these people were living in, um, in the massively growing cities such as El Alto, um, next to La Paz and also in the Cochabamba area, um, and to some extent in, in Santa Cruz where, where there were growing populations of um recently migrated Bolivians. And then the other tradition of struggle that that Morales was explicitly gesturing towards was a um an indigenous struggle that was particularly centered in the Aymara-speaking highlands of Bolivia. And these would have been rural communities um, and you know sort of their their urban counterparts that felt like they had always been excluded from the political projects in the past. So the nationalist revolution in 1952 didn't speak to them because, um, it didn't, it didn't recognize the autonomy of their indigenous communities. And these were, um, indigenous organizations that either were, were based in the countryside or increasingly were migrant groups who were again, moving to these cities. There was a generation of, um, Aymara-speaking youth who went to university, starting in the in the 80s and 90s, and and these people um, these people became historians, they became sociologists, but they also were developing a pr- a very um, profound critique of Bolivian society under the uh, lens of decolonization and saying what Bolivia has never had is a chance to decolonize, and so Morales. Um, who got his political start as a member of the Coca Growers Union in the area outside of Cochabamba, was very explicit about trying to bring together this this union-based activism and this indigenous decolonization and to to meld the two into a single political project. And that made him wildly popular and it made him really something kind of new for Bolivia. So that's how he came to power in, um, in the early days of the 21st century.
0: I mean, it's 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 very interesting. I I, I feel that that not a lot of times that connection is, is making explicit the the, the idea of, of workers, uh, a coalition of of worker and indigenous, and sometimes this has been a very challenging issue. Uh, I, I I know this more about the Peruvian case because obviously I I have lived here all my life and. For example, it was very few the ones that, that tried to to forge an alliance like that, and and in the Peruvian case, it was someone like Hugo Blanco who who come from Trotskyism, and and sometimes that had a burden because many thought that that, that Trotskyism, particularly because of internationalism, wanted to to erase um, uh, indigenous identities, and but he. Uh, since Hugo Blanco himself identifies as, as indigenous, he was a, a Quechua speaker also, so he 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 had a very different perspective, and 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 I don't know if he calls himself today is still a, um, a Trotskyist, but but he was really influential in in, in Peruvian history, and and, and 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 many said that that the in, the indigenous rebellions in in the sixties in, in in Peru were the ones that led to, to the to the agrarian reform that that occurred in Peru. That was very uh, sometimes it's not necessarily that remember, but it was very radical change in many ways. Even if it was made by by a by a military government. So so I, I understand this this kind of coalition could be a, a very Powerful and, and sometimes misunderstood because uh, I feel particularly people might be um, confused about about Aymara identity particularly because when when people think in, about the the past the pre colonial past of of, of the Andean countries many people associate the Ink Empire and the Ink Empire since in, in its last stage uh, spoke. Uh, Uh, Quechua was the most widely spoke uh, language. People associate uh, Quechua uh, as the majority. And and it's very complex because being a Peruvian, I I could say that people have different identities. Quechua speakers have very different identities. And and yes, they speak Quechua, but sometimes their, their dialects of Quechua are not mutually understandable and their own identities have to do more with the place they are. And, 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 but the Aymara identity in some ways is much more cohesive in some way. And, and, and in that way, I think it was able to, to, to construct something that, that is very difficult to construct in other places of, of, of Latin America, to have a very kind of old narrative. And, and at the same time, I think because of, of Potosí, the, the almost legendary, uh, Silver mine, Aymara identity also has been in some ways a very global identity, and and he, even here in Peru, like one of the of the places where where even if if Peruvian culture broadly is a, a very kind of commercial um, um, has a very commercial mentality, it, it's it's Puno and Juliaca who have a, a, a very large Aymara population, which which are centers of a very kind of of of, of aggressive. Uh, markets uh, that 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 led to to a very strong cultural sense of of belonging, and and I feel that 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 sense is is what I feel makes Ima identity very particularly even in the Latin American context, because it's, it's something that is, is is very deep and and very and it, it's very open and 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 it it's it's very particular and I feel. It, sometimes it gets lost uh, in translation, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, a really good point. And I think what you're speaking to some of the issues that that have come up since uh, Morales first took office, because, um, you know, Aymara is a particular a particular group with a fairly strong identity. But at the same time, I think it's true that, that many different people who, um, either speak Aymara or who have, um, who come from Aymara communities, they, they do have different experiences in some cases, um, and even someone like Evo Morales, who um, is of Aymara descent, he grew up speaking Quechua. He grew up in the Cochabamba region where, where the dominant indigenous language is actually Quechua. Um, and so he grew up with his in his political life speaking Spanish and Quechua, and his political organizing style was among uh, Quechua-speaking communities. And in many ways, um, these Quechua-speaking communities were more again, sort of, as you said, had a, had a variety of different relationships to, um, indigeneity, to urban versus rural identities. And, and I think that one of the things that, that is absolutely true for Bolivia is that there are many different kinds of ways that, that people have access to their indigenous identities and people who, um, who might and, and their ident- indigenous identities are also very positional and situational. So, for example, someone like Evo Morales um, would read as less indigenous in certain parts of the Aymara Highlands because he is a very um, urban politician and because he is um, not married and doesn't have a specific tie to a, um, a, a kind of rural indigenous community that he came from, whereas... Um, you know, Morales would be seen by members of a kind of urban, um, maybe more Creole or or white upper class as a very indigenous person. So, so this is something that um, Bolivian sociologist Silvia Rivera Cusicanqui has spoken quite a lot about, um, as well as other historians as, such as Rosana Barragan, um, that there are there are these sort of linked chains of um, identity and of racialization that happen within Bolivia. So someone who is too indigenous to fit in, in urban elite circles is nonetheless, um, seen as less indigenous by certain rural community members. And so, um, all that is to say that, that indigenous is, is a really complicated, um, it, it's a sort of really complicated concept and that, um, what what has happened in Bolivia is that there are a proliferation of different um, forms of identifying, and Morales's government has really, in the past fifteen years, um, really privileged and prioritized certain forms of indigenous identity, and so certain kinds of Aymara traditions became a kind of hallmark of his government. And so in the ways that he, you know, held a, an inauguration ceremony, a ritual um, at uh, at the ruins of Tiwanaku, and the way that certain kinds of um, the wifala, the, the Aymara flag, has become a national symbol under the Morales government. Um, these, The way that Morales has spoken about decolonization has been to sort of take a particular form of um, a particular form of indigenous identity and perform it kind of globally as um, what represents Bolivia. But the thing about Bolivia is there there are thirty four different indigenous languages spoken in Bolivia, and there um, there are actually more Quechua speakers than Aymara speakers even in Bolivia. And um, in the lowlands, there's a whole variety of indigenous languages, including Guarani, um, and there's there's some languages that predate um the sort of inca empire expansion and even the expansion of aymara kingdoms languages like uru that are that are basically um dying out and these communities are all they share an experience of marginalization at the at the hands of the bolivian state but they do not necessarily share quite the same cultural identities or quite the same forms of organizing politics and so The Aymara movement being one of the one of the most politically unified has been able to both um, take a much greater become a much greater proportion of the image that Bolivia, the images that Bolivia used to to think about itself as a country. And also um, it has also been been one of the communities that has been able to mount a sort of serious challenge to Morales when um, when indigenous organizers think that Morales has gone too far. So so for example, um, Evo Morales has, um, you know, done things like enshrined um, protection of mother earth and references to sort of Pachamame in the constitution, but has not always, and has enshrined a right to prior consultation for indigenous communities for projects that affect them. Um, But what that looks like in practice can be a kind of complicated thing. And so, um, one of the major, one of the major crises that the Morales administration faced before 2019, when Morales, uh, resigned from power or was forced to resign, um, was the, the conflict over expansion of, um, expansion of development into the Tipnis region of the Amazon. And so, um, this is a park that had been in kind of protected status, and there were indigenous communities, lowland eastern indigenous communities who lived in this region. And there was a, a project to expand a highway th- right through this protected area. And the indigenous communities insisted on a right to prior consultation and believed that they had not been really effectively consulted, that the project was just imposed upon them. And so they began to protest. But on the other hand, there were people in the region who were recent settlers um, from the highlands who were uh, poor peasants, who were many of them of indigenous or mestizo descent, um, but they were not from that region. They were not, um, you know, indigenous communities who were endemic to that region. They were settlers. And so there was a conflict between two groups of poor rural communities who both wanted access to land over the proper way to um, essentially make decisions about whether to develop the land and how to protect it. And Morales um, came out very strongly on the side of development and in fact, you know, called out some of the repressive forces of the state against protesters in uh, the Tipnis region. And this, this created, as I said, a huge crisis for his government. So the the reason that I bring this up is that um, in Bolivia, Morales's vision of what constitutes decolonization was very much based on a kind of like his reading of and his engagement with social movements that come out of a particular form of struggle in the highlands, their Quechua-speaking and Aymara-speaking communities, and that this is not the, the totality of what Bolivia, of, of the sort of cultural diversity in the plurinational um, communities that exist in Bolivia and so Morales' government has has really faced some struggles in trying to apply decolonization to its own structures to to the projects that it itself has created
0: yeah I mean it, it it's always a challenge like the the idea of uh, and probably we will talk more about later the, the idea of uh, uh a multinational state and what that that could really mean. Um, I, I was wondering. I, I think now you have mentioned some things about land, but uh, uh, something that has come out generally in the news when when it was the when Evo Morales came to power. The initially, I remember particularly CNN, CNN, um, or, mm-hmm. which. In, at least the Spanish-speaking uh, CNN was fairly critical of Morales from the get-go, and yeah. at the end, like in, in, in its, or at least in the middle, it became much more sympathetic to 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 Evo Morales of all the governments in the pink wave. We were quite curious, uh, but I feel it, it has to do with the issue that that in some ways. The mass and, and and Evo Morales have been much more, um, to say in some way pro market, uh, although I am not completely surprised in in the sense that that as you mentioned, um, he has uh, prized a lot about uh, ideas from Aymara and Quechua um, traditions and 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 Andean culture is very commercial in in, in a way that that the people overseas I, I guess could be surprised like the the relationship between commerce and culture is is sometimes very fragile in the sense that you sometimes don't know where one ends and the other starts and and for example like um the the celebrations of of the candelaria here in, in peru are probably the largest celebrations that there are and and it has to do that 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 the that, that, that the region of Puno is probably one of the most uh, um, commercial areas that that, that 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 Peru has, and and it's true that many, by the way, are are are, are, are related to to the black market and 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 to kind of this clandestine. Uh, Commercial networks that 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 are very complex to, to describe in many ways, but but that have led to certain level of wealth that can afford a very large celebration. Even like here in in Lima, that in theory will be a wealthier city. Like the the idea of celebrating a carnival was kind of uh, back off for different reasons. So it, it's it's it, it's that connection between commerce and culture that makes that makes me think that that it was much more possible for 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 the mass and Evo Morales to have this kind of of pro market framework in some way uh, and 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 but i feel that that obviously many of the people weren't aware of of kind of this uh this kind of tradition in in Andean history were kind of surprised
1: yeah i think that there's a kind of um There's a kind of disconnect between how um, people on the outside of Bolivia and I think most specifically like um, U.S. based and European based observers who think of um, they see pink tide, they see movement towards socialism, they see Morales giving, um, you know, a hammer and sickle crucifix to the Pope and they think, oh, he's a he's a he's a. Very far on the left, and he's going to create this sort of socialist revolution. And then, of course, you have the the U.S. based right wing media, who's very that's very quick to say this is a socialist. Look at this, um, when in fact, what what the Morales government was doing was something a lot more moderate, and and as you said, sort of trying to, um, in many ways, being quite market friendly and. To some degree, this rests on a, a really profound level of pragmatism. I mean, one of the the central ideas of the Morales government was that we need to distribute resources to people, and in order to distribute resources to people, um, we need to have be making a profit at the level of the state. And so, things like um, you know, nationalizing the gas reserves and oil reserves, and and linking the um the kind of the bonus the the social security networks and the and the uh, social programming, and the things like um you know giving all school children um, money and and access to resources these were very tied to the the commodity boom of the early twenty first century and and expanding um, extractive industries and making uh, sort of public private partnerships between the state and between foreign corporations public private partnerships where the bolivian government did try to retain more control than it would have in other reasons but in other time periods but this this is not a complete rejection of the market and i think that um i think that you're right to sort of to think about what the relationship this is that this sort of approach this pragmatic approach has to andean engagement with the market, which as you say, like Indian communities have had, um, interactions with markets since Mm pre-Columbian times. And, um, in the colonial period, especially, you know, places like, like Puno or places, um, many parts of Bolivia, communities were able to protect themselves and gain a fair amount of wealth in some cases and autonomy by engaging with, um, engaging with sort of regional market market cultures and trying to leverage local resources, whether those be you know wool during the early years of the first industrial revolution or um, or engaging with the mining economy. and and one of the things that that was sort of central to this, I think in the, in the colonial period, especially is that you know Spain, when it colonized the Americas had very, had very strong protections on, um, on its own markets. And so the, the Spanish colonial government was really trying to extract as much value from its colonies and not allow those colonies to trade with other, other people, especially other, other nations outside of the Spanish empire. And so what, what Andean communities did by and large was create really robust, uh, contraband economies. And this could include things like, um, you know, just pocketing some of the ore in the mines so that the Spanish don't even know how much silver is coming out of Potosí. There was a huge circulation of unofficial silver from the mines in Potosí, or this could include um, other kinds of contraband trade. And so this this kind of extra official market uh, orientation is something that was a resource of survival, I think, for a lot of communities and a lot of the cities in, um, in this region. And I think that that's that's actually been the case even after the colonial period where, um, you know, to some extent places like communities, like the ones where I study, um, that are in the, in the sort of on the border with Peru and Chile. Um, I, I did some research in, uh, Coro Coro in the, the, where there are some copper mines. That community is also very much, um, because of its proximity to Arica, because of its proximity to, uh, a the train line between La Paz and Arica and also its proximity to to the Peruvian border, it was a major center of contraband trade where you, where goods would be smuggled across the border. And you had merchant communities becoming fairly wealthy with this extra legal trade. Um, and so I, I guess I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but I do think you're right that there is, um, I think – I think there's this orientation towards the market as something that can help communities pluralize their resources in the face of uncertainty, if that makes sense. And I think that's what actually the Bolivian government under Evo Morales tried to do. And so instead of being reliant on one single resource, like for example, Bolivia's main source of, of GDP for a long time in the 20th century was was tin, and then when the tin economy bottomed out in the 1980s for a, a number of reasons, um, Bolivia was in a complete crisis. Or, for example, um, something like Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, when the price of oil went down, um, that economy could not sustain itself. And what Bolivia has done has been to increase mining, has been to increase dependence on extractivism, but not on a single resource. Um, you know, expanding oil and gas reserves, expanding mining into a variety of different smaller ores. So yes, silver and copper, but also um, various other kinds of ores that can be extracted alongside them. And then also to try to expand into new frontiers like lithium. And this kind of brings us to the current elected president of Bolivia, uh, Luis Lucho Arce, who was a finance minister under Morales for many years. And if you think about um, the Bolivian government's really prosperous series of years under, under Evo Morales, where the economy was growing every year and poverty was being reduced at a, at a really astounding rate, uh, at an unprecedented rate in Bolivia, it's, it's largely thanks to the policies of someone like Arce, who is by no means a socialist, right? He's no, by no means a radical. He's actually kind of a, a sort of moderate market guy. And so it's really interesting I think that he has he became the um the nominee for the MAS party when Morales was unable to to run um and I think it's not not so surprising that he would be fairly popular that he would be seen as a fa- as a very credible candidate by a large sector of uh the Bolivian population even that population that was skeptical of Evo Morales himself and had reason to um, be uncomfortable with Evo Morales running um, again to be president, but was very happy to vote the MAS, his party, back into power with someone like Arce at the head.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think it's it, it. Arce is a is a very curious character. I, I think they some people refer him and, and other people in the Ministry of Finance as the tweet. Chicago boys in reference to, to yeah. the Chicago boys and, and, and yeah I, I mean uh-huh. certainly uh, I think there, there there are a lot of of narratives and 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 I feel that that in many ways Bolivia is a place where narratives breed from afar are challenged every day and and, and one of them I think uh, it it's been the, the rise of El Alto so. I mean, I remember like reading the first time I read about El Alto of all places, it was in a libertarian publication, like reason. And it was very curious (laughs) because I I never have heard about El Alto. And I have lived, as I have said in the beginning, I have lived in in Peru all my life. It's true. I'm in my twenties. But, but I remember like uh, when I have, Talk with some Peruvians about El Alto. Like, I remember someone mentioned that that he had heard about El Alto once, and and it was because there was a news that 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 they didn't allow, I think, cops to enter the city or, or something like that. But but it it's it's a very uh, radical city in many ways. It's a uh, I don't know how to describe it but but it's 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 kind of an open market at the same time it it has various degrees of self-organization uh, uh, of uh, of, uh, of forms of Moodle aid it's very kind of difficult to to describe it uh, I mean not only reason like uh, the is also did a piece about El Alto that sounded Quite positive, which which is curious, and also the economists have done uh, w- before the election. They ran a piece that was quite sympathetic to Louis Arce, which which shows that that uh, I mean, it, as you mentioned, that obviously like Louis Arce is not you know a far left radical as someone wanted to paint him, but but also that that uh, that the 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 complexities of, of, of of, of Bolivia are, are bigger than, than when people imagine. And and something about El Alto that probably some people are aware, even if they don't know that much about El Alto, are the, the Cholets, which are this kind of, of new Andean ar- architecture, which has many, many different... It's not as unified as some people have imagined. Some, some look at the outside, like at Transformers... Uh, and and yeah. the inside they look like like uh, like something from a Bollywood film. So it's 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 very Andean in some way, but at the same time very global. So it it's it's kind of a very curious development. And and, and as you mentioned, at, at, at the issue of contraband, it also has to do like like El Alto is kind of the place for, for contraband to, to go and it's kind of a, a very central pay, place for for that, and 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 I guess that has to do with 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 its rights. and 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 it's it is certainly a, a, a very complex uh, place to, to describe, but it also is is showing uh, a kind of 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 of, of the of the idea of, of changing that it, that is happening in Bolivia. I think in some ways El Alto is, is a very clear example of, of those processes of change that that have been happening in the last years.
1: Yeah. And I think if anyone is listening and wants, and doesn't know what the Cholets are, you should Google Freddy Mamani and the Cholets um, because yeah, it's, it's, those are, are really fantastic examples of um, a sort of, a style of architecture that has developed quite recently that is very explicitly trying to reference Andean, um, Andean artistic styles and especially Aymara cultural forms and not, you know, mimic, um, you know, forms of architecture that are coming out of London or New York city or anything like that. And, and they are also using building materials that are um, widely available in, in El Alto. And so El Alto is, you know, it's, the city is young. The city is younger than, um, than I am in many ways in 1987, I think is when the, um, or 1986, maybe the, the, the city got its charter. And it, if you, if you haven't been to La Paz, La Paz is a city that's built in, in a valley and the highest point, um is you know about is about four thousand meters and the lowest part is maybe approaching three thousand meters and the and the wealthiest neighborhoods are in the lowest part of the valley where where the climate is a little nicer, and the poorest neighborhoods sort of go up the steep slopes of this of this really canyon and El alto forms the the rim of the canyon El alto is really on the high altiplano that is that sits above. At a very high elevation above the rest of the city, and it, it was formed as originally a kind of shanty town. Where um, during the 1980s there was this migration crisis, and crops were failing in the countryside, and um, the neoliberal governments of um, of the early 1980s had shut down the nationalized mining economy, and there was there was a huge economic crisis, and a lot of people flocked to the areas around La Paz, and started building out these very straight streets and these very, um, you know, for at first very temporary shanty town like structures. And then very quickly, El Alto, um, sort of expanded itself and organized itself. So it, it was born in many ways in struggle and it was born not as a result of urban planning, but as a result of necessity. And so the people who, but the people who moved to El Alto had organized themselves, um, either as, you know, groups of neighborhood associations as groups of um say ex mineros of, of like former union members or former community members. And they really organized themselves as these communities of mutual aid that then helped them buy plots and um helped develop the streets and create infrastructure and things like access to water and electricity. And now, not very many years later, um, El Alto is a city that rivals La Paz in size. So El Alto is, um, has more than a million people. It's really huge. It has, as you said, one of the, one of the biggest markets and and certainly contraband markets in, um, in the country. And also, um, you know, a lot of the bus services and transport services that go out to, um, go out to the sort of Northern parts of the Altiplano run out of, they don't run out of the central bus station in La Paz, they run out of El Alto. And, um, but at the same time, the, the central parts of the city that um, ha, are, they no longer look like a shantytown, right? They have these cholets, they have these really substantial multi-story structures. Um, El Alto, it has transformed itself really quickly from something that was very, very temporary and very haphazard to something that is very, um, very intentionally developed. And as you said, there's in, El Alto is really one of the sources of the organizing power that came together to help the social movements that helped um, propel Evo Morales to the presidency and have repeatedly helped him sustain his um, his bid for power. And they have also been, you know, the forces that have been a check on the Añez government in the year since Morales was forced to resign. Um, it has been in El Alto where there have been, you know, massacres and confrontations with the with the military and police. Um, but at the same time, in the in the past fifteen years, since since Morales first came to power, El Alto has prospered and there has been the creation of what what observers have called like an Aymara bourgeoisie or, a, or an Aymara middle class of like very, very uh, lucrative and um, prosperous in many ways families that are um, that, that very recently were migrants from the highlands or, or migrants from rural areas. It's a new class of uh, wealth and and power in Bolivia and what it what this has created is a kind of contradiction or crisis <laughs> among Aymara communities, um, and I'm and among communities in the area because because now there is a great deal of social differentiation, right? So there are some families who are quite wealthy, and there are some families who don't have as much. And this is something that um, the Morales coalition is really still trying to figure out how to. Uh, reckon with, or, or more explicitly, I would say the social movements in El Alto um, are trying to figure out what to do with the fact that that this is now quite a prosperous city, and that there is a um, there are class differentiations between a lot of the the people that live there, and this is something that I think gets lost when um, when the the city is just characterized as like a, an indigenous city, and all the associations about class and race and and things like that that go into it, where where many observers will say, "Oh, well, this is an Aymara person; they must be they must be poor, right?" When in fact, um, that is absolutely not um, not the case in in twenty first century Bolivia.
0: Yes, I mean I, I know uh, obviously about this case more in, in the Peruvian context, and I could even tell a, a, a brief story. Uh, I mean the 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 issue is that that the that the association of 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 obviously um uh poverty and 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 the racial ethnic identities have you know like the the construction of race in in the in the when the spanish empire conquested the latin america obviously created this kind of, of of racialized categories that that affected a lot of of the in many ways the 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 social and, and 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 ethnic classes was was an economic social an ethnic city it had some correlation although it's not as uh, I, I mean it, it always have some some difference for example in 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 uh, my family on my far side is from Chachapoyas and for example there you could have seen that there there was people of indigenouses and that that were relatively prosper. Although it, it also had to do that 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 their own identity was kind of taken because since it was a, a place that had much more um, Spanish immigration, also like they no longer spoke like the, the Chacha language has disappeared basically. So so it, it's always kind of uh, uh, it's it's very dangerous to to kind of, of reduce. Uh, Economic, uh, social uh, division as as the same as as ethnicity, so and and I think with that we could move to the topic of the multinational state because that is a really interesting challenge and and I remember like uh, maybe people who don't follow that much uh, um, Bolivian politics might might not have heard of him but uh, uh, some. Uh, someone who has a lot to do with the the, the mass, uh, at least in its early interactions, was uh, Philemon Escobar. Who was a Trotskyist activist and according Former to minor. some a larger yeah. <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, uh, a mining leader. Uh, and, and according to some people I have met, we were active in the in the in the Peruvian left, he is a larger than life character. And, and hearing some of the stories about him, it seems that is in that way. But he was uh, challenging the idea of the multinational state because he was saying, no, this is a an importation of the Soviet Union idea that that, that, that there are Russians and, and, and Turkmen and Uzbeks and but no that, that we should be all Bolivians and and, and and it's it's very curious because I, I that was the first, I think, criticism that I hear, and and it, it's curious because it, it comes from someone who is from the left and, and 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 who had a role in the in the in the formation of of, of, of the mass. So, uh, how does does these kind of criticisms or, or, or challenges have been have been taken forward, given what you have mentioned before? That is that that despite the multinational uh constitution is still like the aymara quechua identities are are kind of central to 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 to, to bolivia now
1: yeah i think i think having a, a plurinational um or you know government and and recognizing the multiplicity of of cultural identities as nations is a, it's a challenging way to govern, right? It it creates all sorts of different questions. And so at the level of practicality, for example, the Bolivian constitution recognizes in some cases, um, community justice, community forms of justice, for example. So, um, but this has created some questions about human rights, where if, you know, a community decides to punish a thief or a rapist, for example, by, um, hanging that person or by, um, doing some sort of other form of physical castigation or punishment. Does the Bolivian constitution recognize that community's right to enact justice over the right of, um, Bolivians, you know, not to be killed extrajudicially? So that creates all sorts of practical issues. Um, But, but I think that the idea itself is a really powerful one. And I, so thinking about Filemón Escobar and his criticism of this, I think that that goes back to a longer history of political organizing in Bolivia, this earlier moment of union-based organizing, which when I sort of gave a a characterization of it earlier in our conversation, I, I glossed a little bit over the, um, the racial dynamics of, of it, but in the, In the political movements that came out in the 1940s and the 1950s circulating around the revolutionary nationalist movement that took power in the 1950s, nationalized the mines, enacted universal suffrage, enacted an agrarian reform, and really, you know, attempted a kind of a quite radical transformation of Bolivian society before becoming a lot more moderate and uh, falling prey to pressure from the United States and, and ultimately being overthrown by the military. Um, this government had a vision of expanding the, the, the nation, the Bolivian nation to include the people who had been previously excluded. And this is, this is something that my research is partly about. Um, and I think it was a very sincere idea and an attempt to bring previously excluded groups, specifically indigenous people into the national community. But the way in which it tried to do this was to say, um, you know, Spanish colonization and the previous governments have excluded indigenous people for being indigenous. This is a form of racism. What we can do is we can get rid of racism by stopping to divide people along lines of race. So everyone is now, everyone who lives in the countryside is now a campesino, right? They're not indigenous, they're not mestizo, they're a campesino. And based on their class identity as campesinos, they will be participants in the Bolivian nation. And so similarly, in the context that Escobar came from, in, in the mines. Um, you are no longer Aymara or Quechua or Mestizo. You are an obrero. You are an obrero and you join the union and as a union man, you are now a Bolivian citizen, right? So it was a kind of radical transformative idea that class could overcome um, and, and, the, and the government by, re- by respecting class-based organizations could overcome centuries of racism. But what it was also, was a very assimilative project so it it sought to erase cultural difference in the name of a kind of revolutionary class identity and so i think that that despite um Escobra in his later years you know very much embracing a kind of like pachacuti as revolution and and trying to incorporate um indigenous ideas into what that revolutionary project might look like i think that the the that his critique is sort of, it's sort of ignoring the voices of indigenous communities who were, especially, Aymara communities who were saying, "Look, we do not want our culture erased. If you, if you bring us all together in this class-based coalition, you are, on the one hand, trying to um, sort of smooth over our cultural differences, and on the other hand, um, that the same." Reproductions of racist power relations will continue to be happening because there will still be these situations where, in the union meetings, um, you know, the the guy who is wearing um, more rural clothing is assumed not to have much as much to say. If we don't explicitly think about and value cultural identities, then there's going to continue to be, um, you know, discrimination between. Mujeres um, between women who wear a kind of more um, indigenous associated skirts or women who wear what is assumed to be more, more Western clothing and pants and things like that. Um, and so I think, I think that that criticism, that there's a tension here between trying to unify the country on a similar project and the the fear that if, that if too much credence is given to these kind of the these kind of cultural distinctions that are rooted in colonialism that there will be this either um violent fragmentation of the national identity or or i think that there are some uh, you know non-indigenous bolivians who who harbor a real deep-seated fear that that if um that, that there will be an imposition of indigenous cultural norms that they do not want to live upon them, that there will be a kind of reverse colonialism, if you will. And this is, I think, not what the plurinational state is actually trying to do, but I, but it is, it is a sort of challenge. It is a, it is a complicated way to govern. And so I think one of the things that you see the, the longstanding legacies of this tension is in the last year when, um, Morales, you know, ran for election uh, uh, for a fourth term, and this was a kind of contentious decision to do so. He had previously been um, essentially told not to by the population in a referendum. um, That The initial protests that happened against what was assumed to be fraud in the election were kind of broad-based and brought together a bunch of different social um, and political groups that included um, you know indigenous organizations that included the the workers Federation of the country um, there was a lot of widespread protest and one of the things that I saw going around in social media a lot at this time was attempts to try to unify the the anti-morales protesters under the Bolivian flag the sort of traditional Bolivian flag, of what we might call the Creole state. And to say that the we fala, the, the, the Aymara flag is a flag of division. And that the Bolivian flag is a flag of unity. It's the flag that brings everyone together. And that Morales, they, they were trying to posit Morales as some sort of um, divisive indigenous uh, or, or racial warrior who was dividing the country um, and trying to, to increase these divisions, whereas um, these, these counter-Morales protesters were saying, no, let's embrace this. The Bolivian, the national flag, at the level of the nation, we are all patriots. We are all um, for the same country. And I think that um, this, this attempt was an interesting and a, and a quite, um, in some ways, a politically uh, astute move, but it failed Partially because I think that's just not the lived experience of so many Bolivians. I think so many Bolivians do not experience the Creole national flag as an inclusive um as an inclusive symbol. And they really profoundly see Morales' commitment to not just including, but also visibilizing and um and Privileging and and you know celebrating different kinds of cultural identity, particularly Aymara and Quechua, um, at the level of the state and at the level of political power, and so it's not just to sort of like let's celebrate. Um, you know, in the United States, it might be something like let's have one day of holiday to celebrate uh, Tupac Katari or something like that. But in in Bolivia, there was a really uh, I think a, a very profound and transformative attempt to incorporate cultural symbols and to bring. People into the presence of, um, you know, give indigenous communities access to power in ways they hadn't. And so, um, you know, the protesters against Morales, specifically some of the more right wing kind of fascist types, when they started doing things like burning the uifala or pulling it off of police uniforms or trying to physically destroy this symbol that was very much associated with Aymara cultural identity, that's when. I think the lie of the the inclusive Bolivian Creole flag was really revealed because, um, when people started to, to burn this indigenous flag, that, that was a very racist act, but it was also, um, you know, it was, it was very, very much fit within sort of centuries of, um, the exclusions of, indigenous looking and acting and sounding people from political power. And so I, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine in in La Paz in Bolivia. Gosh, it was, it was probably seven years ago at this point. I think it was 2013. And there were already groups of people who were fairly critical of certain things that Morales was doing, you know, um, feminist groups who didn't like his his really reluctance to take on issues of gender violence or, um, you know, environmental groups who were very frustrated with his handling of the Tiffany's conflict, these sort of things. But I remember a friend of mine saying, you know, before Morales came to power people with my last name, they didn't own businesses. They didn't, they didn't have high positions in the military. They didn't have access to political power and for all his faults, Morales has changed that. And I think that, um, so I think I, I guess that's a that's a long way of going back to saying that um, the critique of the plurinational state I think comes out of really serious attempts to uh, try to try to unify the country around things other than racist exclusions. But what it really what it really fails to capture I think is that the continuing persistence of racialized exclusions even to this day in Bolivia and that. Um, and that there's something really profound and and I think truly decolonizing about the state, um, the the Bolivian state under Morales, giving voice to and and highlighting uh, the symbolism and and certain cultural practices of indigenous communities.
0: Yes, I think that that's that's important. To, to have in mind. Now that you mentioned the criticism toward Morales uh, and, and the mass, I think some of the most interesting groups and in being critical of of, uh, of, of both the mass and Morales, but at the same time be, being firmly um, feminists and decolonialists have been Mujeres Creando, which uh, for the yeah. people that don't know, it's uh, an anarcho-feminist collective. Um and I think they have like really put in issues on, on the on on the table. I think, for example, like um, Maria Galindo talking about the, the idea that that you know that that indigenous traditions um, uh, have uh, have been like there is a very a view that's very reductionist about about how in, in indigenous traditions saw sexuality but it, some uh, a very kind of distorted portray is that is very binary and I think that's not very accurate uh, but also it's not that they were completely inclusive but it's it's true I mean I'm at identities it, it's very I mean I could say uh, it's it will be a challenge to, to say where the hakarus I am uh, my family my far mother's side is, is partially of Hakaru descent. They they have uh, and it's very it's true it's a, are very small communities, but they have very in some ways a kind of matriarchal attitude. So the the females have a, a very strong role in, in society. Um, for that is that some some actually argue that, that it, it wasn't necessarily the Mara communities were were very binary, that that, that kind of conceptions have uh, to do with colonialism uh, with the spanish colonialism but also with the expansion of of the inca empire it was much more uh, it, it, even if it was different than 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 uh, that that state formations in in our place it was kind of a more normative uh, way of political organization so it, it was interesting kind of of, of here those those challenges to kind of of, of both uh, patriarchy and, and racism, and it was a really powerful challenge. And I think it's it's one it's one of the most interesting uh, developments that have been happening in Bolivia, also. And, and, and I feel that I hope that that they could, could have more um, more to, to attention from 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 the international media because I think they are doing really things that are very important to. Um, to to try to 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 diversify the diversity in some ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that um, Mujeres Creando is um, they they have such a presence in La Paz. It was it, you know when I lived in La Paz for a while, it was really um, remarkable to see they have a very characteristic style of graffiti, and you'll find it all over La Paz. You'll find it all over Bolivia, where there's this sort of cursive and these anti-patriarchal slogans on the walls. Um, and they, they are doing something very interesting, but I think they are also, um, very attuned to, um, not wanting, I think I think they do want to be recognized internationally, but I think they're also being, they're quite attuned to, um, not wanting to be sort of co-opted by a broader, um, by, by a sort of, international movement. And I think, I think you're right. I think that, um, so I, I am of course not indigenous. I'm not Bolivian. My, my insights on the subject really come just from talking to people and reading a lot of books on the subject, but, um, there is a lot of, a, a lot of different perspectives on how, um, binaristic or how, um, gender, gender functioned in Aymara and Quechua communities and how, how in Andean, communities, um, gender and different kinds of gender roles function within a community. And there's, you know, in, in many Andean societies as they exist today, there is a fair amount of, um, binarism between a sort of, um, male and female pair, a conjugal marital pair that, um, but of course, you know, the indigenous practices and cultural, um, systems that exist to this in this current moment are products of evolution, right? Indigenous communities are not they're not static and they are not always um, reproducing the same forms. and there were, these communities survived in the face of centuries of um, Spanish patriarchy, right? And so um, I think that there are a lot of reasons to to think more um, to think quite critically about like what um, what spaces for, uh queerness for example or gender identity or um you know organizing and and the and valorizing the power of women um that do already exist in these andean communities and i think that um mujeres creando has been very good at creating a space in the city of la paz to um help certain com- certain groups in that city organize and i think um there is also you know there's a there a a plurality of voices within Bolivia that are thinking pretty clear critically and, and speaking up against kind of gender essentialist or, um, machista or patriarchal ideas that are coming down from different political organizations. And that is one of the, one of the, the strong critiques that has been made against MAS is that, um, you know, Morales himself and many, MAS politicians, while, while they do have a formal commitment to including women within the ranks of their organization. And in fact, one of the most powerful um, MAS figures right now is Eva Copa a woman from El Alto, um, who has been um, negotiating as president of the Senate, this sort of um, transition with the Añez regime and has been, I think, instrumental to the MAS maintaining the power that it has in the country. Um MAS has faced a great deal of criticism from feminists and from, um, women generally about their, their relationship to, um, sort of machista styles of leadership and whether they give sufficient voice to women. And then also, um, you know, how they are responding to what are quite high levels of gender violence in, um, in Bolivia. And of course, Bolivia is not unique in this. There's very high levels of gender violence in um, almost every part of the world and um, certainly in many parts of Latin America. But the, the, you know, there are quite um, substantial levels of femicide that is women who are killed, especially by intimate partners. Um, And this is something that I think Bolivia has quite a lot of resources and can be dealing with. It should be dealing with better, but there's also, um, you know, a longstanding history of, uh, feminist movements coming out of fairly elite circles and using, um, the, using the, the language of feminism to impose certain European or, um, upper-class, uh, you know, visions of what politics should look like and what, um, what women's lives should look like to, um, to impose those on, uh, groups they, they assume to be sort of less politically savvy. And so Bolivia has a, you know, has a long standing tradition of feminist groups struggling to, um, articulate different visions of politics and, and to be inclusive and to be, uh, anti-colonial and decolonial. And I think, um, this goes back to people like, uh, Domitila Barrios de Chungara, who was a, um, a worker and who helped organize the, um, the Housewives Committee of the Miners Union. She was uh, a political organizer explicitly as a member of um, a, essentially a, a women's union tied to mining communities. And and she, she saw herself as an activist and she saw herself as an activist for women's rights, but she had very strong critiques of what she saw as Western style feminism, which she saw as, as sort of like Dividing women against men, whereas her organizing was very much rooted in her being a mother, a spouse, you know, a daughter, a sister, things like this. Um, On the other hand, uh, feminism is not necessarily, uh, you know, only the the uh, provenance of elite or um, or or Western or non-Bolivian groups. And I think I think some of the strongest forms of organizing you see in Bolivia right now are. Are forms of organizing that are led by women that are um, trying to organize as, for example, indigenous women and um, Mujeres Creando, who's been around for quite some time, is um, is giving space to some of those voices. But they're not; they're certainly not the only group doing that in Bolivia. Uh,
0: Yes, uh, that's that's really interesting to to hear. I, I I could say something that that it was. Of all people, by, by by a neoliberal economist, by Pablo Secada, he was actually work uh, in the economic team of, of of Mario Vargas Llosa campaign. But he said something that it was quite remarkable once uh, that, that I wasn't expecting him of all people to say it. He said that that without women, like Peru will also have like being have bankrupted like time ago, and and it's true, like. It is remarkable, like uh, and, and, like we we have talked a little bit about contraband, but but also like not all the informal economy obviously is contraband. Sometimes it's, it's just people selling street food, and sometimes you could pass to to some uh, to some avenue, and there is a woman like working there like from six a.m. You could pass at at, at, at ten p.m. and that woman is still there because. Uh, particularly the single mothers you know that that uh, in countries like peru or, or or other countries in Latin America where there is very lack of 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 a welfare state they know that they will be the only kind of income that that their their kids or something is not 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 just their kids but uh relatives that that are too old and don't have a pension or or that are have disability and are are unable to to access the um some disability benefits um they they rely on them and 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 it's it's always i think what what people sometimes forgot to to understand is is that that strongness even if we don't necessarily identify as feminists of, of trying to challenge uh the the, the narrative that, that have come and and i feel it's it's something very remarkable and 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 um in a Conference organized by by the uh, by uh, a foundation linked with the teachers union in Peru. They uh, they had a panel of historians and 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 they when they mentioned what was the most overlooked topic in in Peruvian history, uh, uh, a feminist historian said that it was the role of women in the indigenous anarchist movement in the in the in the early 20th century and um, in, in Peru, which it's, it's interesting. I feel that there are, um, I feel that maybe we haven't looked that much into it. And 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 sadly there, there has been a very kind of, of, of complex narrative um, around the, the topics of, 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 of indigenous women and identity, because a lot of times, um, even the, like the, the historiography that, Talks about radical movements has centered in, 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 in male figures, and 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 and, and it, it maybe in a lot of ways has uh, has excluded um, not 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 just uh, women but also queer non- non-binary elements that, that have been influ- important and influence in those movements, and and I feel that that sadly uh, part of, of Latin American historiography stereotyp- is still lacking of 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 trying to to highlight this 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 these participations that, that that have been really important in trying to, to move forward um the 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 struggles
1: yeah and there's it's actually really interesting there's a couple of really good books um that came out in the 80s and the nineties in in Bolivia in Spanish about the sort of Women's organizing in um, in anarchist unions at the beginning of the 20th century, and the and this sort of um, organizing around market women and, and culinary workers, especially. And I think I think that's absolutely true. And I think I think something that is um, true of the left in the 20th century generally was that by prioritizing a kind of a model of um, well, a model of socialism, but also a model of political organizing that really privileged the men as as political actors. So there's there's workers, or there's um, you know leaders, or university students, or, or peasants, and um, in in all cases, those were assumed to be uh, sort of male breadwinners that were providing for their families, and therefore had this kind of relationship to both production and politics. But in the case of of Andean communities where, um, you know, gender complementarity really means that that men and women have these different roles in provisioning the household, but also just in any sort of place where poverty exists and families generally can't provide themselves with enough income with uh, a single earner income. You know, the, the, the labor of women is absolutely crucial to reproducing both the family and also just allowing uh, people to live and survive. And especially in the case of, um, you know, in the face of austerity with with the kind of um, increasing precaritization of labor where a lot more people are working as street vendors or, um, you know, doing very, very limited amounts of contract work or, or just don't have steady employment. It's generally women who are able to move into those spaces and, um, you know, work as work as domestic labor or, um, you know, create, you know, bake, bake empanadas and sell them on the street or make their leverage market connections to to sell things in an extra official or even an official way. Um, you know, the, the vast majority of what we term informal labor is carried out by women and children. And this is something that I think a lot of people talk about as though it's, it's sort of um, a a thing that is a feature of the late of sort of late capitalism or or a result of globalization or neoliberal structural adjustment and it certainly is something that um that has come about as welfare states have fallen apart right like if you if if there's no longer a social safety net for people then people have to scramble and hustle in order to just survive but but this is a much longer history of women's involvement in both economic life of of countries like Peru and Bolivia, um, but also of women's uh you know public presence and and organizing as a result of it so, so yeah, I think, I think that is something that has been sort of overlooked and that is something that that a lot of the political parties of the 20th century and the left especially didn't really understand. They sort of understood women as having maybe an auxiliary ring, wing, maybe they could be in support of their husbands and families, but really women as economic actors and women as political actors have been often very savvy, very flexible have been a kind of bridge between their nuclear families. So a bridge between their husbands and children and also extended family networks. One of the things that we talked earlier about how Indian societies have been very commercialized, but one of the things that is also true of, of Indian social organizations is that um, since the times when most people were living in rural communities and making their living off the land, um, you know this this idea of complementary ecosystems, or or what um, anthropologists call vertical integration, has been a feature of Indian community life. And what this means is that um, you know if one group lives in a place in the highlands that can only grow potatoes or or has has a very limited climate, they might have a, a satellite population in. A lowland region, they might have other family members, other community members that live in places where where you can get salt, where you can herd llamas, where you can grow um, tropical fruits, and where you can grow mice and things like this. And so so the community as a whole would have a circulation of goods between them because they all have slightly different economic and ecological niches that they lived in and that they worked within. And this is this continues to be true even in sort of Urban settings as well. So, you know, someone might have a job in a city, but they're sending money home to, um, you know, family members in the countryside to allow them to buy uh, livestock, so that they can then rent out their livestock on other people's land and turn a profit in that way. Or you have people who are working in, um, you know, working in Chile to send money home, and there's another family member who owns like a, you know, a bus company or or a single um, mini bus to travel around. And that you have these extended families leveraging networks of, of money and economic opportunity, which is a way of, again, sort of responding to economic precarity. And it's a way of, um, it's a way of sort of saying, okay, we're not going to put all our eggs in one basket. If, if the economy fails in this one region, or, um, you know, if, if the crops fail, this year we are still going to have other ways to support ourselves. And it's really women who have been the, um, the linchpins and the links in these kind of expanded familial and extrafamilial familial s- social and economic networks. So sometimes they involve, um, blood family, but sometimes they also involve things like, uh, you know, cooperative organizations or, um, or groups of people who are just working together to, to pull resources. So, yeah, I think, I think women have been a key, um, a key group in, in not just the economic life, but also the sort of social and political life of Bolivia. And that, um, for all it's failure to really address th- things like gender violence and, and ongoing, um, you know, oppression of women in some context, the mass has, Opened up space for women to participate um, in its ranks, and and really valorize things like uh, you know street vendors, or um, recognize that there are people who are um, who are coming to politics from a variety of different um, positions, and not just in their role as a sort of formal labor. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that that, that makes sense. I mean. It's always like the the I think in, in Peru, like the seventy percent of, of of the labor force is informal. So I think the the numbers are very close in Bolivia. So I mean, obviously that that leads to a lot of of complexity, and and obviously like even a. In, "Quote unquote," a job that doesn't necessarily have that many requirements, like for example, like people working in security. So, Peru has a lot mm-hmm. of the problems of, of security. So, security is a way to have a formal job, but that generally goes to to males. So, um, even if it's, uh, examples as simple as that are are generally very genderized. So, as you mentioned, like it's obviously like. Uh, and in, in the formal economy, like the women and children are overrepresented. So, so that that makes sense. Now to move to the to the topic of the ousting of of, of Evo Morales, who many have called a, a coup, the the that uh, it's also worth mentioning that that Evo Morales, for for many, um, had represented, uh, and 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 some people say that even more, his vice president, Alvaro uh, Garcia Linera, has been. Uh, in some way drunk by power so uh when they lost the, the, when e. Morales rose the referendum on on, on the reelections he trod, uh, he tried to 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 make a legal way to to present him again and 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 that led to to basically um to what many, even people who were relatively sympathetic to to the mass and Morales, think that he wanted to to perpetuate himself in power, and 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 that led to to a much larger opposition to the mass that it would normally had if 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 Evo would have decided to 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 step back and, and present another candidate, and 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 it was very kind of very curious. Also, uh, we should talk about the role that that the Organisation of, of American States have, have played. Uh, because uh, people may don't know, I may think that that, that, that this organization uh, is the is is led by right wingers, but actually Luis Almagro was uh, I think uh, worked in the in the in the in the administration of the left-wing uh, Frente Amplio of Pepe Mujica in in, in, in Uruguay so it's very curious, kind of, of how a lot of things uh, combinated and in, in a very complex way. They, they were, they, it was, they were interviewing a, a former diplomat of Ecuador, trying to to explain why the the Organization of American States took that position, and he he said that it's very difficult to to, to say why because it, <laughs> we don't know what's the the internal struggle there. It hasn't been able to be in, be in public, so. Um, but but what do do you make about all this kind of, of 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 process that that led to 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 the ousting of Morales?
1: I think that um, it's a great question, and and you're right that the organization of American states played a um a not very clear a, a very clear and important role, but it's not it's not really clear what they were trying to achieve in in that um, and. So, so what happened with Morales? As I've already said, um, is that is that he was, um, you know, he was trying to run for re-election at a time when a, a large proportion of the population didn't necessarily want him to do so, and part of that has to do with, um, in the early days of the Morales regime, he. Um, in the early days of the Morales regime, there was a rewriting of the Bolivian constitution. And in that constitution, there was a provision that someone could not hold office more than two times consecutively. So this was this was a very clear, the Bolivian um, constitution written under Morales, um, this sense that you cannot be reelected a third time. And um, Morales, when it came time for him, after he had run and served two terms, he made the argument that, um, that you know, that his first election happened under a different constitution. It didn't apply. The process of change that he was trying to bring about was still needed to happen and it still needed to um, he still needed to be in power. And he won that election. I mean, there were there were many people who sort of looked side-eye potentially at that justification, but still voted for him. And he was still a popular politician. Um, but by the time he came to run for what then became his fourth term in office that was clearly against the rules of the constitution. So he called a constitutional, he called a, um, a public referendum asking whether the public wanted him to run again for a fourth term. And he lost that referendum. That was in February 21st, 19, uh, 2016. And, um, he lost it narrowly. It was something like 52% um, against and then he got the Supreme Court and the electoral tribunal to to say basically that he had a constitutional right to run, that it violated his human rights um, to engage in politics, these term limits. So basically he got the the courts to declare the constitution that he helped write as not limiting. And I think that well, while, while he may have had the legal right to do this, I think that running again for a fourth term in 2019 was a very politically stupid move. And, and, and I say that in in 2019, what I was saying to people who asked me was, you know, I think Evo Morales is still one of the most popular politicians in Bolivia. Like, I think if he were to run, he would still probably win the election. But I think the Bolivian people have spoken and said that they do not want him to perpetuate himself in power indefinitely. And I think the Bolivian people who've had a very recent experience of, you know, 18 years of military dictatorship between 1964 and 1982 and um, a whole lot of political governments that didn't really feel like they were a part of a representative democracy in years before and after that, I think the Bolivian people have a very keen sense of um, wanting to participate and believe in the democratic process that they've helped create. There was a constitution that the people helped write and they wanted Morales to hold himself to it. And so I think by the time the elections were happening at the end of 2019, both there was widespread discontent among the social movements that had brought Morales to power. And this had to do with both Morales's handling of the election, but also, um, a kind of widespread perception that for the last several years, Morales had been centralizing power around himself and not allowing a kind of secondary, le- le- um, leadership class to grow. So, um, and also that he had been trying to kind of undermine and undercut the social movements that were allied with MAS and sort of make those more officialist and more under top-down control by Mass. And so I think that a lot of the social movement base was was critical of Morales and was hoping that there might be a new generation of political leadership. And... That was also kind of combined with a um a widespread perception among people in the middle class where they they kind of didn't like Morales's gender politics or his environmental politics. And then it it butted up against a right- wing um community in the especially in the eastern lowlands and and especially among kind of um uh, more elite social groups that really saw Morales as, as kind of the literal devil, as like the symbol of all that was wrong with Bolivia and that felt that um, he was on some level, a kind of evil force in the country. And so all of these groups were were varying degrees of discontent with the Morales regime. Um, and so when it came time for the October elections, there was a widespread expectation that was stoked by the right um, but was not only shared by the right that there might be some sort of electoral shenanigans or kind of um, fraudulent behavior by the electoral commission that had granted Morales this right to run again. And When the so, so in Bolivian elections, you have a kind of quick count that's that's kind of an external audit that tells that tallies the results independently of the official count. So that the quick count is what gives the updates on election day about where the parties are and and who's winning. The quick count went quiet, um, just as. Um, it became clear that the electoral results were showing that M- Morales would have to go to a second round um, because he didn't win a majority outright of the elector or he hadn't yet won a majority outright of the el- of the votes um And that quick count when that quick count went down, that looked like fraud to a lot of people. and when the quick count came back up again several hours later, Morales had enough of a lead to avoid a second runoff and this, Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of explanations for why that happened or why that may or may not have been fraud, but it looked like fraud and it felt like fraud to a lot of people. And, um, both people who were already willing to be skeptical of Morales were very quick to protest and say, this did not feel like a democratic election. And that's when the OAS stepped in and said, we have reason to believe that there has been fraud in, in the election. And that, that gave a lot of ammunition to people who wanted to see Morales gone, and so what was going on in the early in the last days of October in the early days of November was um, widespread political protest, which is you know a very common technique in uh, among Bolivian social movements to get um, a government that is doing something that they don't like to put pressure on that government to change, and so I think a lot of people were protesting demanding that Morales held a second round of elections, that he respect um, the the result that that was shown earlier that suggested that Morales needed to have a second runoff against Mesa. Um, So I think a lot of the people protesting in the early days were protesting to sort of pressure Morales to not take advantage of the situation. But then the right-wing groups that were also protesting, they saw their advantage and they decided... um, to sort of push for Morales to step down and the OAS report helped that narrative. And so, um, I think the other thing that happened was a kind of, um, essentially a, a, a longstanding factional dispute with the police where the police didn't feel like they'd been getting enough respect and enough remuneration from the government. The police re- revolted. Um, they rebelled against the government, Morales tried to use the forces of, um, the state to repress protests against him, which again was a very stupid move because they refused to do that. They refused to fire on protesters. And, um, and that is when the head of the armed forces suggested that Morales step down and, um, in the face of a police mutiny. And, um, it's worth mentioning that a number of groups, including the National Workers Federation and some of the indigenous communities that, um, had supported him, uh, also asked him to step down that same day. And when Morales then fled the country, uh, there was kind of a political vacuum where the Bolivian right took power and started using the arms of the state, sort of um, repealed a law saying that the military couldn't be brought out against its own citizens, and started using both the police and the military to... Um, Cracked down on the MAS as a political party. So it started off as a protest against what was um, what seemed to be very, at least, very unfair elections, and ended up as what many have characterized as a military coup.
0: Yes, I, I, I think I, 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 I shared that impression. Um, one of the issues that 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 it seems that you know the. The government of Janinej represented uh, was kind of a move to the past, uh, the kind of military repression, and and, and, and there are some indications there were human rights abuses, uh, and, and 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 you know the military was was shooting protesters, and 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 a lot of 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 issues that remind that Bolivia of, of, of the past uh, that it was a uh, past was very conflictive and, and violent. And that in that context, even if, if if, if uh, Bolivia with the mass still have some kind of chaos in some way, some chaotic realities, it wasn't like, like in, in the, the issue of, of, of uh, the same with that with Agnes also, uh to to what degree one could, could say that that the that the Agnes, uh, like a lot of people have said that that a lot of of of, of Agnes in popularity and that also heard by by extension the right and and also carlos mesa who, who is much more uh, complex to characterize uh, um, he he certainly not a far rightist, but but he certainly has uh, abandoned some more uh, kind of centrist ground that he had in the past. Um, I, I feel that that in some ways the the failure of 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 Bolivia to contain the the pandemic is, is a failure that sadly have been seen basically in in the entire Latin America. Uh, which is that the the countries have a very bad uh, healthcare systems. Um, Or in the case of Chile, which has a a slightly better healthcare system that still have a population that has very high levels of, of poverty. So, uh, in that sense, like for them, they don't have access to basic service. And obviously like the coronavirus requirements of some levels of, of, of hygiene, like, like being able to wash the hands and if they don't have water, what can they do? So. Um, and if
1: they, if so, they work as street vendors, what can they do? Right? Like it's very hard.
0: Yes, yes, yes exactly. Exactly. And that, that also like people working in the informal economy have suffered much more than, 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 others, uh, and and having obviously a much higher reason than the ones that had a, you know a salary and still will be able to to lock down and and things like that so uh, at the same time i feel that 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 the the, the, the both Luis Arce and, and David Choquehuanca represented some kind of change. In some ways, I, I will say David Choquehuanca much more than Luis Arce, because Luis Arce is seen as, as a candidate of, of, of continuity in some way. And David Choquehuanca has been part of of, 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 of the mass government, but, but he is much more of someone very independent-minded. I, I remember hearing the, the interview that, that he did with Maria Galindo of Mujeres Creando, no So he's a... He's a he is the elected vice president of Bolivia now, and and it, it will be very strange for for in another country of of the world to see a a, a, a candidate of vice president going to an anarchist radio show. So, so I think that spokes a lot about like uh, the the peculiarities of, of Bolivian politics, but also about David bit who is a very Kind of, 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 of someone who, who has been much more autocritical of of, of the role of, of the mass in government and and he said like uh, something that 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 was really interesting. He said that that you know Evo has to face justice like like any Bolivian. I I think many countries that uh, quote unquote had more institutional politics. It would be very difficult for anybody to say saying that. Uh, of the leader of of their party, probably it will have go saying no that this is a political persecution and that, that our leader is innocent and, and things uh, in that style and and in that sense I think David Chagwanga uh, I think represents some kind of change although as, as, as some uh, believing observers have have. Uh, also pointed out, it's probably that Morales is going to want to have uh, uh, still want to have a role in 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 the mass. Uh, so so it's 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 going to be complex to see this kind of transition. So in some ways, the 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 pandemic make it. Uh, I am not sure with that without the pandemic, the the right will have been able to to win. But at the same time, I feel that that this victory in probably there is some. To, to to the failure to contain the pandemic, that has uh, helped to the, this victory be be so high, and at the same time, it's very complex to see what is going to be the difference and the continuity between uh, this uh, current formation of the mass and the mass of the past.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's really right. I think that. Um, While no government has been successful, I would say, at dealing with the coronavirus, especially in um, places where there are really high rates of poverty and really high rates of informal labor, Um, and Bolivia has struggled with its healthcare system. Bolivia faces really serious challenges in that. Um, But I think it's true that the the Anya's government really failed to to promise or to deliver what they promised, they criticized Morales for being corrupt. They criticized um, Morales for not governing in the name of Bolivians, and then and then Agnes and her uh, co governors really failed to protect Bolivians. They got caught up in a scandal where you know the Bolivian state paid way too much money for ventilators that didn't work. There were there were corruption crises. There was repression against citizens. There were massacres. Basically, the despite what they seemed to promise the anya's government pretty quickly just kind of demonstrated to bolivians um what life had been like before morales and really like um you know did the worst things that they accused the mass of and so this meant that i think they um even without the coronavirus i think they they were on Um, they were unpopular and people were maybe afraid to tell pollsters that they were going to support MAS. But I think what's the very clear outcome of this election that happened this year is that while Morales, um, well, a lot of people have criticisms of Morales as a leader, and they don't want him in power indefinitely, they do want the MAS to continue to govern and that the MAS party platform is really popular. And I think that you're right that what uh, David chogiwonka and, and what Lucho Arce really need to do is they need to continue to demonstrate that they are independent-minded thinkers and that they need to carve a path that is still within lines of the MAS project, but that is independent of the leadership of Morales. And I have hope that they can do so. I am quite hopeful for this government because I think they are both in different ways very interesting politicians. But I also think that it's just a very, very hard time right now to be trying to rebuild an economy, to be trying to protect people, like the coronavirus is a challenge to everyone, and the Bolivian state is coming at this from a kind of self-imposed economic crisis. Anyas um, was already kind of contracting the economy before, before Morales. I mean, before coronavirus came, and um, and just this moment, this this global moment is is one of really severe. Um, problem, and then we haven't even touched on you know climate change and the fires. Um, and Camilo, I'm afraid I'm going to have to get off this call because I have a meeting with a student right now. But I would be willing to to keep this conversation going if you wanted to set up a time um, later to talk. Uh, if if you want to uh, keep talking about this because I think it's a really fascinating conversation. Or we could we could do this in another episode if you want to
0: yeah sure that 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 has been it has been great so just before you go if you have uh, some publication or something to, to promote or something just that or
1: thank you yeah <laughs> i um so i have um there there's nothing that is coming out I- imminently but i would if you are interested more um in looking at some of the things I've written. I have a website. It is Elena And, um, I have also written for, um, historical blogs, such as nursing Clio and edge effects magazine. And, um, I have have written a little bit about things like feminist organizing in Bolivia and uh, the revolutionary nationalist movement. My one of my most recent was in the Age of Revolutions, which is a blog, um a historical blog, and so I can I can send links to those if you want.
0: Okay, that's great. So so thank you Elena for for being a guest. I, I think it's been a a very enlightened conversation, I think ob- obviously like Bolivian history is very uh, complex and I feeling that sometimes it, it gets distorted even more than, than normally Latin American history get distorted. Uh, but but it's it, not it's always... it's
1: not for novices. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I hope that that, that people could, could try to 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 be more interested in what's going on in Bolivia and the, the kind of complex process of change that are going on. So so thank you. Thank you a lot. Uh, it was great. Thank you very you.
1: much. Yeah. Great having you on too. All right.